Well, good evening, and uh, if you're following this in your books, which you hopefully uh, will sort of do, <clears throat> but not too much, um, it's uh, session 10 that we're, uh, that we're doing tonight. Um, how can I resist evil? Uh, which kind of begs a question, doesn't it, as, um, as to what is evil? Uh, for that matter, what is temptation? There's a famous old Oscar Wilde quote where he says, I can resist everything apart from temptation. And Alexander Woolcott, who you probably haven't heard of, said, all the things that I really like to do are either immoral, illegal, or fattening. <laughs> so where does temptation come from? Um, where do addictive behaviours come from? Um, do we have to tolerate that? What about all the bad stuff that, uh, that happens on the news every night? Do we just shrug and accept it and say, well, that's life, isn't it? Or is there anything that we can do to make a difference? So if you would, please, would you turn with me to, uh, to Romans chapter 12, verse 21. If you're looking in your pew Bibles, it's page 1140. It's right at the tail end of Romans 12, 1140. It's a very short sentence. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Uh, how is that possible? Uh, easier said than done, you might think. I don't know whether you've ever noticed, but if you add one letter, the letter O, to, to God, you get good. If you add one letter to evil, you get devil. Now, it's a quirk of the English language, I guess, but the New Testament claim is that behind evil there is a devil just as behind good there is god now the mere mention of the word devil because that didn't occur in the vox pops did it um, and you may already be thinking to yourself oh come on you don't believe that in this day and age i mean surely the devil went out with gargoyles and medieval churches but interestingly, just uh, for some people, actually some people find it easier to believe in the devil than they do in God. Uh, you must have heard of the film The Exorcist, which is pretty famous. The guy who wrote and produced it, a guy called William Blatty, uh, said, as far as God goes, I'm a non-believer. But when it comes to the devil, well, that's something else. Because the devil keeps advertising. The devil does lots of commercials. But I think for many people, the idea of spiritual evil, spiritual forces of evil, is actually quite a, a tough one to swallow. Um, and a lot of people don't believe in a personality of the devil. And perhaps part of that is, uh, is misleading images. Um, there are a couple just coming up on screen. Both of them are misleading, both of them equally unbelievable and uh, unbiblical. And you can see for yourself that the, the top one is, uh, is a picture of, uh, of God uh, sitting on clouds, surrounded by a couple of or two or three cherubim and ready to do a bit of smiting. 
And the, the other one is this figure of fun, Satan, uh, with his uh, pitchfork and his, uh, his cute forked tail and his horns and some pictures will have him with cloven hooves and things like that. Actually, that's a Greek image of a satyr. It's just, in fact, both of them because the top one is a bit like the picture of Zeus. Um, so it's all very Greek. It's not biblical in the slightest, but it seems to have found its way into our popular culture and it's terribly misleading. Turn again with me, please, to, uh, to Ephesians 6 on page 1140. Ephesians 6. Oh, I do beg your pardon. Ah, right, I do beg your pardon. 1177 is on the screen, thank you. Just haven't corrected it on my notes, have I? So Paul writes this. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in other words, Paul is saying that there is a cosmic battle on uh, between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and actually the battlefield is planet Earth, and we are the key players in it. And that those evil forces are forced to be reckoned with, cunning, powerful, and warfare, after all, is, is not a, a, a nice business, is it? So why should you believe in uh, the existence of a devil of a, of a personality. Well, I'm going to suggest three reasons to you. First of all, it actually makes pretty good sense of the world around us. Looking at the world around at the moment, um, you don't have to look far from the news. Uh, this is uh, today's paper. That little girl there, she's in just the, the other side of the Syrian border in a camp of 13,000 refugees and they're living in conditions that make Glastonbury look like the Ritz. Um, not at all good. You know yourselves of the, uh, the, the Hutu conflict and the Tutsis in Rwanda and the genocide that's occurred there, the genocide in Serbia and Croatia, um, etc. We've got the Jimmy Savile affair on right very current at the moment. And you don't have to look far abroad either because a week, sorry, a year ago to the week, a young woman with five children was murdered literally across the road from, by the, the partner that she was trying to help. And I could cite plenty of other examples. So really any theology or worldview that completely rules out and dismisses the notion that there is a very definite evil force in the world has quite a bit of explaining to do. And then there's Christian experience as well, so if you like church tradition, because down the centuries Christians have um, been aware of personal struggle against temptation um, that, uh, that they never had before they were Christians. So the, very much the feeling of going against the flow and it being harder going really as well. Which brings me to Herman. Herman as an American. Herman was on a journey uh, down one of their motorways, as they call highways, Highway 280, and his car phone rang. 
It's his worried wife on the phone. Darling, I've just heard the news. There's a car going down the highway and, and it's, it's, going the wrong, it's going the wrong way. Please be careful. And Herman replied, Sweetheart, it's not just one car. There are hundreds of them. <laughs> and the third reason, and the most important one of them, is because of the Bible. Um, the Apostle Paul clearly, as we've just seen, believed in the existence of these forces. And so did Jesus. Well, did he believe just because everyone did in that day? Well, actually not. And he taught his followers to say the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, which incidentally, just as a matter of an aside, can equally well be translated, deliver us from the evil one as well. And some translations actually do have that. Now, we don't have to get too obsessed by this. Um, C.S. Lewis gave some good advice when he said that there are uh, two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils, he pluralizes it. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, he writes, are equally pleased by both errors. Just within the last uh, week, there have been sort of lamppost hoarding, advertising things, advertising a local psychic fair. There's a big one in Reading, usually at Rivermead every year. There's no doubt that within the last couple of decades, maybe three, uh, there's been quite a resurgence of interest um, in the occult, uh, meaning uh, the witchcraft, spiritualism, palm reading, Ouija boards, tarot, channeling, consulting the dead, astrology, horoscopes. All this stuff is actually expressly forbidden in scripture. And I guess that uh, it's probably not far off the mark to say that, uh, that when people do that kind of thing, they're kind of just on a bit of a journey themselves, wanting answers, exploring, and don't know quite where to look. And it might well be that there are a few of us here in the, who have had a little dabble with things like that in the past, and um, they, they need to be put behind us. Uh, the Bible calls repenting, of course, turn your back on it, have no more to do with it. So, and so that we can restore our focus, not on the occult, but on God himself. Now, Paul says we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. So what are they? How do these forces actually work? Well, the first thing to remember is that, of course, um, his ultimate aim is quite simple. The game plan is he wants you dead. And in fact, he wants you more than dead. He wants you destroyed. Because the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Whereas Jesus came, he said, that, that you might have life, that we might all have life and have it um, to the very full. So that's the kind of overall aim. Well, there are a few steps you know, to get us into the position that he, that he wants us. Now, at this point, can you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3? And um, you'll find it on page 5. So here, uh, this is the Garden of Eden story, and the devil here appears in the form of a serpent. And, and it's just a nice little cameo that, uh, that shows us um, the sort of operating strategies that, uh, that he has. So first of all, he says to the woman, did God really say 
you must not eat of any tree of the garden. Similar to when he tempted Jesus as well. If you are the son of God, if you're a Christian, are you? Doesn't matter then, does it? So that's kind of softening up process really before the main attack. And if you look onto the opposite page, of course the background to Genesis 3 is Genesis 2. And if you look back to verses 16 and 17, you find that God actually gave wide-ranging permission to eat of lots of fruit from lots of trees. So the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, followed by prohibition, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, followed by the warning, because when if you do eat of it, you will surely die. Now, why did God actually put that prohibition in in the first place? Simply because there are things that we really don't need to know or to experience. Why would God want us to experience evil? Why would he want us to suffer the consequences? And the answer is, of course, he definitely doesn't. But Satan completely skips right over the permissions and just focuses entirely on the little prohibition, and which he then exaggerates and distorts. And that general tactic hasn't changed much because it basically works. So uh, he will tell you that God is a killjoy. He doesn't want you to enjoy anything. After all, you can't get legless. You can't be promiscuous. You can't do drugs or whatever and, uh, and we'll try to paint God up as, as a mean old celestial killjoy, a real old spoil sport, which is actually just a complete slander, isn't it? Because God has given us so much, and in Christ we're given new life, this fantastic privilege of new life, of restored relationships. These are benefits that are huge, that come with being a Christian, our lives really are given added value and purpose and meaning by the gospel. This, of course, being an addition to all of the other things that God has given to absolutely everyone. So every time we climb a hill and we admire the view, or watch a sunset, or, you know, sorry, it's a bit cheesy, but, you know, here is a newborn baby cry, and, you know, to quote the old song. You know, those are guiltless, wonderful pleasures. Every time you listen to a piece of music that you love or see a painting that you think, wow, you know, those are things that God has given to, to absolutely all of us. But Satan just wants to gloss over and focus you on what you, uh, what you can't do. And all God is trying to do is to say, it's not good for you, don't do it, so that we're happy. So then he goes a little bit further in this story. So having done the doubt bit, having done the distortion bit, he then goes straight into the outright brazen denial. So in verses 2 to 5, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you mustn't touch it. Uh, for you will die. 
You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it and your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's saying, don't you think you should try this for yourself? There might be something more. It won't do you any harm. You know, God's just protecting his pitch. You know, he just doesn't want you to have it at all because he's mean and the relationship is then broken so Eve eats passes some to Adam who tamely follows suit and then we see the consequences the first consequence is shame and embarrassment so they suddenly wake up in a way that they've never woken before and seen that they're naked they sew themselves some fig leaves together for coverings So finally, too late, the penny drops and the truth dawns. Mark Twain uh, said, uh, human beings are the only animals that blush or need to. And actually, when it comes to the push, most of us, may I say all of us, have got something or other that we actually aren't that proud of and that we wouldn't particularly want played up there really in front of an auditorium of people. You know, whether it's a, a, you know, a thought that you had or whether you were mean to somebody or whether you kind of did somebody down or, or whatever. So much so, uh, something that, uh, that Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stuff, invented Sherlock Holmes, he did. Um, he realised... And he it was a bit of a practical joker, so he played a trick on, on some of these some of these very well respected people. So um, bearing in mind these were the days of Victorian England where the uh, where you know telegrams were new technology. So he sent them all telegrams, all of them, unsigned of course, unattributed. And it said simply this it said Flee at once, all is discovered. Within 24 hours, every single one of them had left the country. <laughs> so there are things there that we, that we always want to kind of cover up and protect ourselves. But the relationship was down, really, from that moment on. So God was in the habit of paying them a visit. And, uh, and then they go and hide from the presence of God. Very interesting. I find this in myself, I have to say, because if I've done something really that embarrasses me and I think, oh no, why did I do that? I'm going to have to go back to God. And actually, I really don't want to do that. I know that I have to. I know I do. Um, but is that difficult? You bet it is. You know, it's not as if God's going to forget if I leave it 24 hours. I don't know why I do that. But it's just a sort of bit of an instinct, really, that we all kind of want to to avoid uh, God as well and hide. So, and they are just profoundly lost. And then there follows this plaintive cry, Adam, where are you? Uh, it's not as if God didn't know where they were, but they are at this point profoundly lost in a way that, that, that being geographically lost can't possibly express. So Adam says, I was afraid and naked, so I hid. And God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree which I commanded you not to eat of? You've done it, haven't you? 
And what does Adam do? Takes responsibility, not a bit of it. He blames his wife and God in the process as well. If you notice, he says, that woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God turns to the woman and says, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So as someone has uh, famously put it, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Ooh, (laughs) painful, I know. So that's really the first marital breakdown, really, in history. Uh, First relationship breakdown. The blame game starts there. And uh, then judgment follows. But Satan basically lied because he said, you will not surely die. Well, they didn't die on the spot there and then, but something inside them did die uh, that day and needed restoring. Now, the other thing that Satan's very, very well known for is, um, although it's not particularly evident in this story, is he's an accuser. Well, he accuses God a bit, really, of being a spoil sport, etc., etc. But, um, but his, uh, his name, or Satan, the Hebrew, it's a Hebrew name, and it means slanderer or accuser. So um, he accuses us to God as well. So that's a very common tactic. So he makes you feel guilty. Now there's, there's true guilt, there's real guilt that's important to recognise, and there's just some rubbish stuff that actually is also important to recognise and dismiss. Let me explain a little about, uh, about what, I, what I mean here. So if we have done something wrong, how do you know whether it's the Holy Spirit putting a finger on it um, and that feeling of guilt is entirely appropriate. Well, the answer probably is that it'll be very specific. So if God says, you spoke to, to Johnny like dirt or whatever, you know, and um, um, then and at that point, if the Holy Spirit has said that, if God has quietly whispered that in your ear, you need to kind of then take action. But if you then continue to feel guilty about it, it's entirely inappropriate because... From that point onwards, once it's confessed and dealt with as best you can, then there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the condemnation bit at that point is actually dysfunctional, if I can put it that way. It's not, it's inappropriate guilt, if you like. So, and if it's very nebulous and you're just feeling rotten, again, that's very unlikely to, to, be, to be God actually doing that to you it's much more likely to be the old accuser it's also important to actually differentiate between temptation and sin because temptation is not sin jesus was tempted yet without sin says the scripture so we have a choice as to how we respond whether we allow that kind of stuff to stick and uh, and land and set and become part of us or act on it, or whether we reject it. And one of the best things that we can do is to try to dismiss it as quickly as we, as we can. So you never quite know where a sin or a temptation is going to lead. If I can give you a very simple and rather trivial personal example, uh, one of my little foibles is that I, I really like to have 
pictures straight. So occasionally, if, there's, if I come to your house, don't be too surprised if the picture of straightening fairy visits as well. So if it's crooked, I might end up quietly doing that. And one of the things where I... And if, you've, if you ever... If you, Judith and I quite like a bit of cheese now and again, and of varying sorts. And some are easy to cut straight and others are not. Now, for me, it's a problem. Because I like to, I like to get things absolutely perpendicular... And so, um, and if it's not, then I might have just that little extra slice just to straighten it up. <laughs> and then the next thing I know is it was straight that way, but it was slightly kind of off the, off the vertical. So now I've got to take that bit as well. And before I know what, I've, um, I've imbibed a little bit too much. And the um, following day, I'll get a tap on the shoulder. And Judith will say to me, David... Did you just eat half a block of cheese last night? <laughs> was it that much? I didn't think it was that much. And actually, that's how things start, isn't it? No, no heroin addict ever starts by wanting you know, to become a heroin addict. They're just dabbling initially. You never quite know um, where that is going, to, you know, is going to take you. Okay, so uh, we can. What is our position in Christ? Now, I know that's all very theological language, but could you turn with me to uh, Colossians one verse thirteen? Hopefully, the page number is up there. One one eight two. Colossians one verse thirteen. So Paul, Saint Paul, writes this: for he has rescued us, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Or as the RSV translates it, he has transferred us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the son he loves. So we've just had a, uh, a transfer of, uh, of, of ownership, if you like, it like uh, football players get a get a transfer, but perhaps rather more fundamental than than that. So we are under new management. We are citizens legally of God's kingdom. That we've been set free by Jesus Christ, and on the cross, the powers of evil were disarmed, absolutely disarmed. So if you look across the page at chapter two and verse fifteen. Um, it says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And that's why the name of Jesus has the power that it does. I'm coming to, uh, to the close, but I just want to tell you about my friend Brian. Um, Brian was always a bit of a jack the lad, really. Um, and in the, he was a little older than me and uh, used to, in his heyday, the sort of folk like him used to be known as wide boys. You heard that familiar, that old term? It's not used these days. Anyway, I don't, I don't think Brian had ever really been de- detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, but he was certainly a bit of an Arthur Daly. So he went through numerous jobs. He got married four times. He was a serial philanderer. But then in his late middle age, he met Jesus the transformation was, uh, was both immediate and quite dramatic. Um, Brian took time out to get his relationships right. 
he gave away a lot of material possessions. Um, instead of the shady deals uh, of his past, which ripped others off, he became generous to a fault. And he took up window cleaning, not because it was a well-paid job, but because it gave him an opportunity to go around and meet a lot of different people and talk to them about Jesus. That was why he did it. Sadly, Brian uh, developed cancer and died about four or five years ago, and loads of people attended Brian's funeral, and and one after another told how Brian's faith had had touched their lives. It was a joyful funeral. Before he died, Brian told me jokingly that he was going to make his minister follow the hearse with a megaphone saying, he's not in there, he's with the Lord. Uh, I could tell you stories, other stories, of several men locally to here within a few hundred yards who were once heroin addicts um, and with all the crime and all the rest of it that goes with that who ended up in Yeldor Manor, across town near Wargrave, Christian Rehabilitation Centre, lives turned 180 degrees through the power of the gospel and, uh, and not the same people. You'd be fine about having them as next door neighbours. Now, the battle isn't quite over yet, though, um, unfortunately. Um, people, of the, sort of the older folk here, I guess, um, um, will be very familiar with the idea of D-Day and V-E Day. The younger ones might be less familiar with it. Um, so V-E Day was the final date that the war finished in May 1945, but D-Day was a crunch point at a major battle, and at that point, the, uh, the, the basically Hitler was finished, but it still took 11 months to finish him off. And we kind of live in that awkward gap where Satan's fate is sealed because of the cross, but we're still living in between the, the two, between the final victory. And it's up to us to sort of enforce that, if you like, in our, in our own uh, lives. Now, um, how do we defend ourselves was the next point, but I think I've pretty much run out of time as I knew I was going to. And uh, and it's in the books. If you want to read uh, Ephesians 6 about the armour of God, you are very welcome to do that. But I've just got one little illustration that I want to leave with you. Um, So um, over here, I have uh, a... A magnet, actually, it's a, it's a couple of magnets, and it's probably the best illustration I, I can sort of manage, really. If you can imagine God as the as as the magnet, the one with the with the, the kind of inbuilt power, glued onto that, I've got a paper clip, and it's been glued on not for very long, I'm afraid. It's only been a few hours. So, um, but the here are two ordinary paper clips. And, uh, and I can, if I take one paper clip and I, I touch it to the other one, and you can't see it, I know very well, but I can abs- oh, the, the, actually, one is, one is slightly lifting the other because it was in contact with the magnet. But this one should be, with any luck, he says, um, a stronger magnet because it's been in contact with the big magnet for a longer time and the longer we are in contact if you like with with god some of him rubs off 
on us. And uh, that, and it means that, that in, when it comes to facing evil, because we are mag- magnetic, if you like, like God, it repels. Now, obviously, that's, uh, that you, you can't really see, except it's pushing and pulling me one way or the other, because they're fairly strong magnets. So our lives, the closer we are to God, the more we will automatically, without really much effort, we will instinctively and automatically be able to repel evil. It's just a little thought to, to consider in, um, in finishing up.